The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Update on Ulan. Nothing much has happened in the last week. I don't know if he's been communicating with uh, Jim uh, any, I was able to divest myself of some of that responsibility last week when Myers came in. And so uh, I haven't heard anything. I know he had uh, Jim's phone number and had talked to him a couple of times last Wednesday. But he's supposed to meet with a lawyer Thursday, and then he's supposed to have his first court appearance on the 19th, which I guess is next Tuesday. And then it'll just go from there. The lawyer was not very hopeful. The lawyer, I talked to her on the phone last week, and she said, uh, and this is just runs contrary to what a lot of State Department people and others had said to me, and that is, well, Germany's a very safe, secure area. They're not going to send him home if there's harm. She said 95% get sent, not, and they only keep about 5%. And the, a, you know, all this boils down to is understanding all the complicated rules of asylum and, and refugee status and all these treaties that they have. In Ulan's case, he's not truly being officially persecuted by the government. He's just come under attack by uh, radical Islamic elements within society. And some of them may be masquerading as officials, or they may even be in collusion locally, but it's not official policy. And so you fall through the cracks. So we need to pray that we can, that if that doesn't work, then he'll be able to turn around and apply for refugee status with the U.S. And we'll just take it one step at a time. But remember, the Lord's greater than any of these situations or circumstances. So we'll continue to keep him before the throne of grace. Speaking of the throne of grace, let's take a few moments to make sure we're in fellowship, give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you that we can gather together in freedom in this nation to study your word that we still have the freedoms that we have. Father, we continue to pray that you will raise up leaders in the uh, political realm who understand freedom, who understand what true freedom is and can lead our nation back from whence we've come. Father, we continue to pray for our president, for his health, for wisdom, for his decisions, and for those who advise it. Father, we thank you for this church. We thank you for the outreach, the ministries that we have we thank you for the way you've provided a place for us to possibly meet. We pray you'd give us wisdom as we go through that decision-making process. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that you would 
Help us to understand what we studied, that we may see how it applies to our individual spiritual lives, and that it may be used by the Holy Spirit to produce spiritual growth in us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Having mentioned the building, I did this a couple of weeks ago. There is a building that we are looking at. There's a place that we're looking at. It's not an independent freestanding building. It is an office complex inside of an office building on facing the Beltway just north of Interstate 10 on the inside part of the Beltway. And so far it looks pretty good. We have a reached, we have reached terms with the uh, leasing agent. See, last time we had everybody look and then we reached terms and we couldn't agree on the terms, so it's sort of a waste of time. This time we have, a, a, we have agreed on terms so that if the congregation approves, then we can go ahead. So we will be having a deacons meeting to go over the details Sunday night after church so you can pray for us regarding that. And then we will be announcing probably Sunday night a time when everyone can meet together over at this new place, can walk through, see what's there, see the location, get a feel for it, and then we'll have an intelligent discussion when we have our congregational meeting. So keep that on your prayer list. Okay, we're in Genesis chapter 17, wrapping that up this time. This is the probably the focal chapter on the Abrahamic covenant. It focuses on the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, which is the sign of circumcision, which we studied last time. As I pointed out before, there's a literary structure in Genesis 17 that follows the pattern of a chiasm, and that is spelled C-H-I-A-S-M. It's from the Latin word chiasmus, which is based on the Greek letter chi or chi, which is like our letter X. So in the first verse, we see a reference to Abraham's age, 99, that the Lord appeared to him. And then the Lord has his first speech and begins to speak at the end of the first verse. That extends to the second verse. Then Abraham falls on his face in response as God calls him to obedience. And then there's a second speech by God in which he informs Abraham that he's going to give this covenant to him, that he will be the father of many nations, that he will, there's a, that he will uh, establish the covenant with him. And the key word in that verse is that he will give the covenant. And the verb there is the Hebrew verb natan, which simply means to give. But just like didomy in the Greek in the New Testament, whenever you see that word give, it emphasizes grace. And it's translated in most of your versions, I will establish. It's really not the word for establish. We have that word a little later on in the chapter. It's simply the statement, I will give my covenant to you. So it's an expression of grace. So when we come down into verses 4 through 8, there's a reiteration of the promises related to uh, physical uh, productivity through Abraham. And God promises that he is going to multiply him exceedingly. He's going to make him the father of a multitude of nations. He says, I will multiply you. I will make you a father, the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And these are repeated two or three times in those verses for emphasis. And then for those descendants that God promises Abram, he reiterates the land promise 
and specifies again that it is that land promise, that land of Canaan that he is going to give to the descendants of Abraham for an eternal possession. And then we come to the centerpiece of the chapter, which is the third speech from God in verses 9 to 14, where God commands the rite of circumcision as a sign of the covenant. This is the central mandate and the focal point of the whole chapter. It's a physical ritual, as we studied last time, that's to be performed on every male. The reason it's to be performed on every male is, number one, it was it's a sign of separation from sin. This nation is being separated unto God. The flesh or the foreskin is a, uh, a symbol of, of sin and the sin nature. It is Adam, the male, who was the head of the race, who was the first to sin. It is through the male that the sin nature is passed down from generation to generation. It is the male that's the head of the home. So it is the male that is responsible for this physical ritual, and it is through the male that the seed is promulgated from generation to generation. And remember the focal point of the covenant is the promise of the seed and the, the, the emphasis in the, this chapter is on the productivity that God is going to give to Abraham and his descendants. I will multiply you exceedingly. You'll be the father of many nations and many kings. There's an emphasis on productivity and expansion. And, of course, the underlying idea here is through sexual productivity. And so it is the male sexual organ that is set apart in this symbolism. So we have the ritual of circumcision that is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And then there is a fourth speech given in verses 15 down through 17, which is the name change of Sarai. And she is said to be the mother of nations as well as kings. This parallels the second speech where Abram was said to be the father of nations and kings. Then again, Abram falls on his face. This mirrors the third verse where Abraham fell on his face. Then there is a fifth speech from God in verses 19 through 21 regarding Ishmael. And then God ceases speaking in verse 22, just as he began to speak in the, at the end of verse 1. And then God ascends from Abraham in verse 22b. As I read that, I thought, you know, I need to trace the number of, of ascensions there are in the Scripture. We have an ascension of God, I believe, from the earth prior to the flood, and here's a second ascension. And, of course, later on we have the ascension of God from the temple and then the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we could almost say there's an ascension of the Holy Spirit when he's removed at the rapture. So maybe I ought to take a little time and develop a doctrine of the many ascensions in the Scripture. And then there's a concluding statement in verses 24 to 25, giving Abraham's age as 99 and Ishmael's age as 13, paralleling the first verse. So we see that it forms a pattern where the first half mirrors the second half, and that looks like this X on the screen. And it's as I pointed out, it's like a frame pointing to the center of the literary uh, literary. Um, structure. 
so that the emphasis is on that centerpiece of the sign of circumcision. That's what the chapter is all about, although there are many other details and other doctrines embedded within the chapter. So we come to verse 15. Come to verse 15, and God, God said to Abraham, this is his fourth speech, God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. So there's going to be a name shift. He was, his name was changed from Avram, the father, uh, exalted father, to Avraham, meaning father of a multitude or father of nations. And her name is going to be changed from Sarai to Sarah. Now, what is the significance of this change? Well, Sarai looks like that in the Hebrew. It is the same root on both Sarai and Sarah. It is, Sarai is understood to mean my princess with the first person singular ending. Now, some confusion entered into an understanding of this in the uh, early part of the 20th century. The Septuagint transliterated Sarai as Sarah, spelled S-A-R-A. No I on the end. Then Sarah was transliterated into Greek as Sarah, S-A-R-R-A, with a doubling of the R. And at one time, scholars, in their attempt to understand the meaning of the two names, suggested that the, a possible root, based on the Greek transliteration, might have been a root meaning contentious or striving. But that has been thoroughly rejected by Hebrew scholars and it really didn't have that great of a following to begin with. It doesn't even show up in the dictionaries anymore. And one of the best arguments against it is just a common sense argument. How many of y'all are going to look at your sweet little baby girl and call her contentious one? You're going to call her my princess. And that's what Sarai means. This is my little princess. And so that was her name. And then it's given a new significance when God renames her princess because it moves to an absolute category because now she is going to be the mother of kings. She's going to be the mother of nations. So she is not just a localized princess, but she is a princess for the world. And so her new name is Sarah, which is derived from the root Sarar, which means prince, chieftain, or ruler. And the A-H ending, of course, is your feminine ending, so it means princess. Now, the promise that's given in verse 16 is that God is going to bless her. He says, and I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations, kings of peoples shall come from her. Now, as we get into this, we see another very important word, and that is the word for bless. It's the Hebrew word barak, B-A-R-A-K, barak, meaning to kneel, to bless, to praise, or even to salute. It has a, very, a variety of meanings. The root and its forms occur over 451 times, in the, or 415 times, in the Old Testament. And just over half of them, about 220 of them, 
occur in the P-A-L stem. Now, Hebrew is really different from English. It's a Semitic language, whereas you have some, at least some affinity with Greek because it's an Indo-European language. But in Hebrew, you have these different stems. Every, every verb is what's called a trilateral, which means, which is a fancy term for three consonants, three letters, is a trilateral root. And then because of the way you shift the vowels around, you indicate different nuances to the root meaning. So your basic stem is called the cal stem, and that's roughly equivalent to the indicative mood. But when you have the pl stem, that is the intensive uh, stem. It intensifies the meaning. And the pu'al, you notice the similarity in sound between pl and pu'al. It just shifts the vowel points in the middle, and it becomes the passive of the pl. And then you get into the hyphial, that's the causative stem, and the hophile, notice the similarity between hyphial and hophile. Hyphial is the active intensive, and hophile is the passive intensive. Anyway, when we come to barak in the pl, that is the primary way in which blessing is used. Now, while some scholars suggest that there's a relationship between the idea of kneeling and receiving a blessing, it's better to understand these as two different words. The word for barak, for blessing, didn't come from the word barak for kneeling. It's called a homonym. They're spelled the same, they sound the same, but they're two different roots. We have the same kinds of things in English. Blessing is an important concept to understand. Uh, we use it a lot today. I've, I've noticed in the last few years that you hear a lot of people talk about God. Bless you, bless you, what a blessing today is. I mean, they just pepper their vocabulary with blessing, and I would suggest that most people don't even know what it means. So the basic root idea of blessing is the idea of someone being in, endued with power or strength for success, for prosperity, for longevity, for fruitfulness, for productivity. It is somehow God is enduing a person with a certain amount of strength or power to accomplish his will for their lives in some cases or to fulfill a mission. Uh, it's, has, that's the basic idea. For example, Genesis 1, we see God bless the animals that they would be fruitful and multiply. So God gave them the power of procreation. That's what that means. That was God blessing them. He's enduing them with a certain power. Same thing with man. He blesses man to be fruitful and multiply. So that is a, uh, an empowerment that God gives. Now, blessing is used three different ways in the Scripture. And we have to understand this because often we say, well, bless God or let's bless God. And it means something completely different when God is the object. We're not going to endue God with anything. God already has everything. He's self-sufficient. So we have to understand that there are different nuances to the phraseology. When God is the subject, when God is blessing something, God bless so-and-so. When God blesses and man or something else is the object, then God is the one who is imbuing man or imbuing man with something. He is giving him uh, some power to accomplish some task. When man is both subject and object, for example, if, if some man blesses someone with something else or says to someone, says someone, may you be blessed, 
then the idea is that they are expressing a wish that God would endue you with a certain amount of power, strength, for prosperity, for productivity, uh, to accomplish whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. But when we shift it around, and God's the object of the verb, bless God, or we're going to come together this morning to uh, bless God. That phraseology is used in the Psalms a number of times, where God's the object of the verb, and what it means is it's a synonym for praising God for blessing us. When, you, when God is the object of the verb to bless, then the idea is that we are going to praise God because He has endued us with this power or ability or capability to be fruitful, to be productive, to have good life, long life, healthy life, prosperity, these ideas. The basic root idea isn't to be confused with some sort of material prosperity, but God giving the ability to accomplish the task that God has designated for for the individual. Okay, so God says, I will bless her, and what's the context? She's going to have a baby. See, it's productivity, fruitfulness. Just like we have in Genesis chapter 1, God blessed man and said, be fruitful and multiply. God is going to give her the ability, this 90-year-old woman, to have the ability to have children. He's going to regenerate her reproductive organs so that they are now going to move from being uh, stiff and incapable of production to where they're going to be uh, flexible, where they're going to be alive, where she's going to be able to carry a baby, where the muscle tissue in her uh, abdomen is going to be able to expand and contract, and she's going to be able to uh, do all of the things that are biologically necessary in order to carry a child to fruition and give birth to a child and not have it kill her in the process. So God is going to bless her and give her a son and And he says, I will bless her and also give you a son by her. And again, we have that verb, natan, in the Hebrew, which indicates grace. God is going to give in grace a son. First time we've had son mentioned in reference to the covenant. Up to this point is uh, you will have many descendants, uh, you will have seed, but it hasn't been designated a son, a male heir. I will give you a son by her. Now, this creates a little conflict in Abraham's thought patterns because it doesn't quite fit his worldview. So she promises, or God promises to give her a son, and then I will bless her, and she will be the mother of nations, and she will, and kings and peoples will come from her. Okay, Genesis verse 17, 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And said in his heart, that is, in his mind, you don't emote. This is a clear indication of heart, meaning the thinking processes of the soul. He said in his heart, in the innermost part of his soul, where the thinking takes place, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah, who's ninety years old, bear a child? So the thought of ninety-year-old Sarah giving birth and He's looking down at himself saying, how in the world is it going to happen here? hundred-year-old man giving birth, and he begins to laugh. Now, there's two ways to interpret this. The first way that some people 
teach is that he's laughing in, in derision. He's mocking God. He's laughing. In, 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 this is a great joke, but this isn't going to happen. As if this is an expression of his unbelief. The second way to take it is that, no, in fact, this is an expression of belief. He is, he is laughing out of joy, and the question is really a question of, uh, of expressing joy. This, is this really going to happen? Did I really win the lottery? Somebody might say after they won the lottery. No, not me. I, I wouldn't win the lottery, would I? No, we ask that question because we, it's out of joy. We're reinforcing what's just happened. And so that's what is going on here. Abraham is not doubting God. He is expressing this question out of joy and out of excitement over the fact that God is now finally going to bring to fruition this promise of a seed that he's made down through the years. And it's going to come through Sarah. That's the point. He now says, look, it's not going to come through Hagar. It's not going to be some other wife that comes along, the seed line is going to go through Sarah. So he is expressing joy, certainty, and it is expression of his faith and trust in God that God is finally going to bring to fruition the promise that he has made. But then Abraham still shows his cultural problems. Well, I'll get to that in a minute. Let's look at this word. Abram fell on his face and laughed. This is the verb Yitzach, which is where we get our name Isaac. And the verb, the second line that you see in the slide is the way the verb actually appears in the text, Vayitzach, and it's from the root verb Tzachach, that's the third line, Tzachach, which means to laugh. So Yitzach is going to be Isaac's name. And in the next chapter we have another episode where God appears to Abraham again, reiterates the promise. Sarah's lurking back in the tent, and she uh, laughs again because she hears this promise. And it is a laughter of joy. Too often we hear it said that it's a laughter of doubt. No, it's a laughter of joy that this is happening in their latter years. So uh, Abraham laughs, and this becomes the basis for Isaac's name. But as I said, started to say a minute ago in verse 18, we see that Abraham hasn't quite broken through his cultural boundaries yet. Just like most of us, we have certain straight jackets on our thinking that are put there because of the uh, thinking of the culture around us. And this happens with Abraham because in his culture it is the firstborn male who gets the inheritance. And Abraham can't get past the fact that Ishmael is the firstborn. And so the inheritance, the double portion, should go to Ishmael. So he stops and he says, okay, I'm going to have another another son, and the seed's going to go through him, but uh, I need to ask for the, a blessing for Ishmael. He needs to be blessed by God as well. So he is requesting a blessing for Ishmael when he says, oh, that Ishmael may, might live before you. And God responds in verse 9 in a very gracious way, demonstrating that he's not going back on any promises he made to Hagar related to Ishmael, that there will be promises fulfilled to Ishmael and his descendants. But he reiterates the fact that it is through Sarah that the line is going to progress. It's not through Hagar. 
despite the claims of the Arabs and the Muslims and others who uh, want to distort what the Bible says. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Yitzhak, Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant. Covenant is a key word in this chapter. It's repeated about uh, eight or nine times through the chapter and indicates a central idea here that God is establishing this contract specifically with Abraham. It's going to be fulfilled with Abraham and Sarah, and it's going to descend through Isaac and his descendants. And again, it's stated this is an everlasting covenant. Remember back in verse 7 when he talked about the the land, excuse me, verse 8, when we talked about the land, that they would be given the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. So now he reiterates that it is through Isaac that this everlasting covenant will, uh, will progress, and it is with him and with his descendants after him. And this becomes a major theme through the rest of the book of Genesis, is tracing how the covenant is, is reconfirmed with Isaac, and then it's reconfirmed with Jacob, and then it's reconfirmed with the sons of Jacob. And that's the covenant line. We come to verse 20. And as for Ishmael, God says, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him. And here we have a cow... Uh, perfect. Uh, cow perfect of the word for Barak, for blessing again. And the cow perfect tense is used throughout this section. We have, uh, let's back up a verse. Uh, verse 19 says, I will establish my covenant with him. Now that's translated in the English as if it's future, but in the Greek, I mean in the Hebrew, it is the hyphial perfect of the verb kum which indicates establishing something. It's not the same word we had earlier, uh, natan. It's not saying I will give my covenant with him. I will establish it with him, indicating a reconfirmation. And it's in the hyphial tense, uh, hyphial stem rather, indicating that it is uh, a causative event. God will cause the covenant to be established with Isaac for an everlasting uh, covenant. It's a perfect Hebrew perfect, which is past tense, but it's what's called a prophetic past. It's something that's going to happen in the future, but it is so certain of fulfillment that it's spoken of as having already been accomplished. And this is how God's promises function in all of our lives, is that they are so certain of fulfillment that they are spoken of frequently in the past tense, indicating that in the plan of God, they are already fulfilled. So God says, I have blessed him. It's a cow perfect of Barak, but it is a prophetic perfect indicating that it hasn't happened already, but it will happen in the future. And how is that blessing accomplished? I will make him fruitful. He will have many descendants. Again, we see that idea of productivity associated with blessing. I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. And this isn't the line. This is the... What we would say, this is the bad seed. This is the wrong side of the sheets seed. This is the Ishmael line. And God says, I'm going to multiply him exceedingly. See, sometimes God blesses the people who are in carnality, the people who are unbelievers, in order to fulfill his purposes in history. 
So he says, I will bless him, and he shall beget twelve princes, and I shall make him a great nation. And this aspect of the twelve princes is fulfilled in Genesis 25, verses 12 through 18, where it lists those princes or leaders that come forth from Ishmael. It's also important to note that Ishmael is going to produce twelve princes, which is a sort of a temporal idea. indicating temporal leadership, political leadership, secular leadership, whereas through Abraham there will come 12 tribes. A tribe is a much more permanent concept than that of a prince. A prince has a rather temporal notion to it. So through Ishmael there will be 12 princes, but through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob there will be 12 tribes. And then in verse 21, we see reiteration of his promise. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Oh, we're getting real specific here. One more year. That means that in three months she's going to get pregnant. You can almost hear Abraham doing the math. Say, okay, we've got three months to rejuvenate the old body. You think I can get in the gym and that'll work? Okay, verse 22, then God finished talking. God went up, ascended from Abraham. And then we have Abraham's obedience explained in verses 23 down to the end of the chapter. They took Ishmael, his son. Notice the order. First there's Ishmael, his son. Then all those who were born in his house. Those would be uh, household slaves, families, uh, family slaves, All who were bought with his money, these are those who weren't born in his house but were born elsewhere, but he accumulated those slaves. And then every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day as God had said to them. So there's instant obedience, and there's a willing obedience, and we see this among all the those present. There's no resistance to this. There is a, a heartfelt response to the command of God, and so all the males are circumcised. And then as we come to the end of the chapter, there's a conclusion that Abraham is 99 years old. When he was circumcised, Ishmael was 13 years old. When he was circumcised, and this brings us to the end of the chapter. Now, what's the key doctrine that undergirds this whole chapter? It's the doctrine of God's faithfulness. Hebrews 11.11 11 says that by faith, that is in relationship to the doctrine and by means of the doctrine that was in her soul, Sarah herself received strength, that this would be the biological miracle that took place, received strength, to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age. Now, why did all this happen? Something going on in her soul. It's always the spiritual dimension that's important. Because she judged him, that is God, faithful who had promised. And this is the centerpiece of our passage And what undergirds, what the Bible says undergirds everything that's happening here, is that God is making a promise on the one hand, and this is articulated through a human convention called a covenant or a contract. And we've studied this before, that in a contract you have two parties, and this is a unilateral contract where God is binding himself to the contract. And God makes this promise... And 
then he's going to keep the promise. He is faithful to his word. He is faithful to the stipulations of the contract. And this is what we're going to learn when we study the doctrine of God's faithfulness. That God is always faithful to his promise and to his word, and he binds himself to these agreements with us so that we can, in turn, have confidence and stability in times of crisis, in times of uncertainty, when it looks like the whole world's crashing around us, when, when things that we were confident of we can no longer be confident of, we realize the only thing that has stability in the entire universe is God. Everything else is going to change. Everything else is in a state of flux. But only God is in a state of permanent stability. And therefore, we can always count on Him. So let's look at the doctrine of the faithfulness of God before we wrap up this evening. First of all, we're going to look at the definition. Definition and under the definition, which is the first point, we're going to cover have six subpoints, six parts to the definition. First of all, let's look at the key words. Definitions are so important. Stop, look things up in the dictionary, figure out what the words actually mean. The Hebrew word is so informative, and I believe the Hebrew concept is really germane to understanding the New Testament because the New Testament writers are coming out of what background? They're, they're all Jews, and, they're come, and they are writing from a Jewish background and an understanding of the Jewish scriptures. So we have a word group in Hebrew, similar to the word group we have in in Greek. The Greek word group is based on pistis, pistos. We're familiar with that from our studies. But this is a word group in the Hebrew based on the verb aman, aman, uh, a-m-a-n. And the root meaning in the cow stem is to confirm to support or to uphold. In fact, in one of the noun forms of aman, uh, which probably relates to emet, which is the word for truth, which is at the bottom of the screen, that word is used in a passage in Chronicles describing the foundation stone that is sunk down into the ground under the pillars of the temple. What are we talking about? We're talking about a, a root concept of stability, something that's not going to shift or change, something that is immovable. And so when we talk about this whole word group, that's the root idea. It's something that provides support, something that provides stability, something that provides certainty. And this word group not only means faithful, it also is a word group that indicates truth, And it's a word group that relates to the meaning of the word believe. For example, we use use it when we say amen, which means I believe. So it's a word group related to faith. So faith is understood here as putting your reliance upon something that is stable, concrete, and uh, unshakable. This is the... Root meaning here. So the cow stem has the meaning of to confirm, to support, to hold up something. In the nifal, which is the passive form, it means to be established or to be faithful, receiving the action of the verb. 
In the hithio, which is the causative stem, it means to be certain of something, to believe in it, to trust in it. So we see all of this coming out of this basic word group. So we have the faithfulness of God is the object of our faith and our trust. Other uh, forms of the verb are omain, which is the noun form, meaning faithfulness. A moon, which is another noun form meaning faithful or trusting. Uh, a muna, which indicates firmness, stability, fidelity, faithfulness. Uh, amen, which is verily or truly, or just simply we say amen. And then emet, which means firmness or truth. This is the word group for faithfulness. All right. Well, we need to go to the next slide, even if you don't have all that down yet. The next is looking at the Greek word, which is pistos. Not pistis, which is the word for faith, but pistos with the omicron, the O at the end, which is the primary meaning for, or the primary word for something that is trustworthy, something that is faithful or ongoing. In fact, uh, one note, I'm going to slip back to the previous slide. In Amman, in the cow, only appears in the participle form. Now, the participle represents ongoing action. So it's the idea of ongoing trusting. It's something that is ongoingly, continuously uh, faithful. So that's the idea of pistos, trustworthy, faithful in duty to oneself or to others. God's faithfulness to his promises, dependability. Now, this comes right out of the Greek dictionary. Notice the third meaning there is God's faithfulness to what? What is the object of his faithfulness? It is his promises. And his promises are either encapsulated in those contracts or they are in passages that are building on those covenant promises. So we start off in our definition. The first part that we look at is the key words in the, in the Greek and the Hebrew for understanding faithfulness. And we conclude that the root idea is the concept of firmness, certainty, stability, something that is immovable, unshakable, something that no matter how hard the wind blows, no matter what the, what the circumstances may be, it's always going to remain the same. There is no change. There is no turning or shifting shadow. This reminds us that there's only one person that's totally faithful. Everybody, every human being you know will disappoint you at some time in some way. Every circumstance, every event, every institution will fail you at some point in some way. Everything changes. Everything's changeable in this life. I know you haven't noticed that, but it is. But it's only God that we can place our happiness on. If you, the principle here is if you place your happiness on anything else in life, it changes. And as soon as you place your happiness on some person, you know, don't look at your spouse right now, but you can form a mental image. You put your happiness on them. They're going, one day they may not be there, either through death or some other reason, or maybe they're just geographically separated. Whatever it is, that person may not be there. Well, if your happiness is based on them, then there, there goes all possibility of happiness. But if your happiness is based upon God, then 
that person as a detail of life. Now, I know you don't like to think of your uh, spouse as just a detail of life, but let's just reduce it that way for a minute. Then that your spouse is a blessing given from God. And God will give and God will take away, but our happiness is based on Him, not on the details of life that we have. And that's what God wants us to understand is that our happiness is based on Him. And when our happiness is based on Him, we don't end up serving the circumstances or any of the details of life around us. We're not dependent on them. We're not dependent on that job. You're not dependent on the uh, promotion. You're not dependent on living in a certain neighborhood. You're not dependent on driving a certain car. Those are just details of life. What matters is that relationship to God. And when everything else is over with, the only thing that you're going to take with you is the results of that relationship with God that you have in your soul. And so part of the things that God, part of the uh, testing that God takes us through is to teach us to not be dependent on the details of life for our happiness. So the second aspect of our definition is that the root idea of faithfulness has the idea of firmness, certainty, stability, something that is immovable. Third thing, don't have a slide for this, is that God's faithfulness is related to his covenants. God's faithfulness is related to his covenants, to his contracts. Look at Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Therefore, Moses says, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations. I want you to notice that faith, the faithfulness of God is defined as keeping his covenant. It's also defined by that next word, which the New King James consistently translates as mercy. But in the Hebrew, it's the word chesed. We'll see it spelled out in a minute, C-H-E-S-E-D, which is the word for God's loyal, faithful love. God's loyal, faithful love. And it's always related to his contractual obligations. When you find the word translated, the loving kindness of God in the Old Testament, that is almost always referring to chesed. It is his loyalty to his covenant. See, with God, his love is not primarily emotive, like it is with us. It is legal. It's based on a contract. See, and when we think about that in terms of, your, of a marriage, you have a marriage contract. And so love is related to fulfilling the obligations of the marriage contract, even if you don't feel like it. That's what gives stability to marriage. Now, we live in a generation today when, when people don't feel like it anymore, they do away with the contract. Well, that means the contract wasn't worth a whole lot to begin with. But with God, the contract is everything, and he maintains his faithfulness to the contract. Psalm 36.5, we see it in the, in the uh, synonymous parallelism of the two stanzas here. The first stanza says, Your mercy, that is your chesed, your loving kindness, O Lord, is in the heavens. The second line mirrors that. That's called synonymous parallelism. In Hebrew poetry, you, you rhyme ideas, not words. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Notice clouds is parallel to heavens. Faithfulness is parallel to chesed, your loving kindness. Psalm 89.1, which is a meditation on the Davidic covenant. 
says that begins, I will sing of the mercies, that's Chesed again, the mercies of the Lord forever with my mouth. Will I make known your faithfulness to all generations? Notice the parallelism again. With my mouth is parallel to I will sing. Faithfulness is parallel to chesed. And forever is parallel to all generations. So it's the same idea expressed two different ways. But faithfulness and chesed are parallel concepts. It's the covenant loyalty of God. Lamentations 3.22, a well-known verse, a basis for him we sing, Great is thy faithfulness. Through the Lord's loving kindnesses or through the Lord's mercies, chesed again, we are not consumed because his, what? His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. This is the parallel to chesed. God's loyal love is based on his covenant. Fourth point in terms of our definition is to recognize that at least three times the Bible states that God is faithful. God is love. First John tells us God is holy. It's stated several places, but the scripture also says God is faithful. First Corinthians 1.9, 1 Corinthians 10.13, which we'll look at in a minute, and 2 Corinthians 1.18. God is faithful. Furthermore, the Lord Jesus Christ is, defi- is described with the title Faithful and True in Revelation 19.11 and Revelation 3.14. That's our fifth point. Fourth point, at least three times the Bible says God is faithful. His character defines faithfulness. You don't sit down here in terms of your experience and empiricism and think about, now, what is faithfulness? Well, you know, I have an example with my dog over here, or I have an example with a friend over here. That's what faithfulness is. No, to define faithfulness, you start with God, because God is faithfulness. He sets the definition, not anything in the created realm. So three times we're said, He is faithful, 1 Corinthians 1.9, 1 Corinthians 10.13, 2 Corinthians 1.18. Then the fifth point in terms of the definition Fifth part of the first point, actually. The Lord Jesus Christ is called faithful and true, Revelation 19.11 and Revelation 3.14. Okay, now we get to the definition itself. Divine faithfulness is God's perfect consistency with his character and promises. God's perfect consistency with his character and promises. He's always consistent with his character. He never wavers. It's related to immutability. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, God has no shadow or shifting shadow. Uh, divine faithfulness is his perfect consistency with his character and promise. promises. In various passages of Scripture, we learn that faithfulness is related to his righteousness, to his justice, to his love under the concept of chesed, and to truth, because you have the same word group for faithfulness and truth. So there is a relationship there between the concept of immutability, which is built on faithfulness, and the concept of veracity. So you could you start boiling a lot of things down. Remember, justice and righteousness are also based on the same word group. So they're just different aspects, but there's a relationship between absolute truth and faithfulness. Okay, that's all in terms of our definition, understanding what we're talking about, that God is 
stable. God is consistent. God never changes. Second point. Scripture says that God is faithful to His promises. We've already seen one mention of this. Hebrews 10.23 is another where we are challenged by the writer of Hebrews to hold fast. Don't fall to the wayside. Stick with it all the way to the end of your Christian life. You don't have 10 years to be a Christian or 20 years. It's standing firm, staying in the race all the way to the end. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Again, this isn't one of the verses I said I listed, stating that God is faithful, but it says the same thing, but not in so many words. He who promised is faithful. What's He faithful to? The promises He made. Third point, God is faithful to us when we fail. That's a tremendous thing to learn. No matter how badly you fail, God is always faithful to His promises. Not to you, but to His promises and to His character. If His faithfulness was predicated on our behavior, we'd be in trouble. This is why we have passages like 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, God is what? Faithful. He is faithful to His promises. He is stable. He never changes. And so no matter how many times we sin... He will always forgive us. Another passage which is a difficult one for people to understand is in 2 Timothy 2, 11-13. Paul writes, This is a faithful saying, For if we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. First point in verse 11. If we died with Him is positional truth. Retroactive positional truth. Romans 6, 2-5. If we died with Him, we did at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, we're identified with His death, burial, and resurrection. If we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. We have eternal life. It can never be taken away from us. And we have a second point made. And the second stanza in verse 12, If we endure, that is, if you persevere in the Christian life and advance, then you will also reign with Him. That is our destiny. But if we deny Him, He will deny us. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean you lose your salvation? No. It means that if you're at the judgment seat of Christ and you've denied Him, He will deny you rewards. That's the meaning of that passage. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If you are a failure in the Christian life and you deny Him in your Christian life, then you will be denied at the judgment seat of Christ and you will not inherit the kingdom. Verse 13, if we are faithless... He remains faithful. See, you have to fit 13a with 12b. If we're faithless, even though we are faithless and we just completely crash and burn in the Christian life, He remains faithful. He will not desert us. He cannot deny Himself. So this is not a passage that talks about loss of salvation. It's a passage about talking about loss of rewards, but we can't lose salvation because God is faithful. He is always faithful to us even if we fail. And then fourth, God is faithful to us in testing. 1 Corinthians 10.13, No testing has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful. That's our second verse from a previous point. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tested above what you are able but will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape, not so you can avoid it, but so that you can endure it. 
So you can stay under the pressure, under the test, claiming promises, moving forward in your spiritual life. And then our final point, God's faithfulness is a divine protection for the believer in the turmoils of life. Psalm 91, verse 4, He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth, it reads in the New King James, actually it's that uh, form of the word uh, from Amman, it's Emmet, but it should be translated faithfulness. His faithfulness shall be your shield and buckler. God's faithfulness is what protects us. No matter what the circumstances may be, it's God's faithfulness that protects us. So Sarah, now that she's been given a new name, she's been given a new promise that the seed is going to come through her, and the seed is going to be a son, and his name is going to be Isaac, and she believes God, she believes the promise, and counts the one who gave the promise as Faithful. So we see a reference to her spiritual advance in preparation for the giving of the Son, and then we come to another test when we come into chapter 18. So we'll start there next Tuesday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement of your word, for the teaching on your faithfulness that we can always count on you no matter how uncertain things may appear in this life. We know that what gives us stability, what uh, stabilizes our emotions, what gives us a solid foundation is your word because it's based upon your character and we can always count on you. We pray that you would challenge us with the things we studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.